Hi there. Welcome to the Princess Power Podcast. I'm your host, Mallory, a teacher, friend, cat lover, plant mom, yoga enthusiast, and a princess. Um, real quick, sorry, this episode's like a month late. I finally finished all my online classes. I'm getting ready for a new school year, so uh, let's get back on track. Every other Tuesday, new episode. I promise-ish, hopefully. Okay, moving on. So today we're going to talk to Katie, and Katie has a lot of good information and, uh, and advice to share with us about drug and alcohol abuse and addiction. So um, if you are struggling with these things, or if you know someone who's struggling with these things, um, I'm also going to link some resources that might be helpful to you. Um, so let's get started. Here's Katie. Good morning, Katie. Welcome to the Princess Power Podcast. I am really excited to talk to you, Um, especially I like to have guests that I don't know very well because you're um, more of a surprise than when I have like friends or family. I can usually figure out what they're kind of going to say and I have no clue what you have uh, going on. So I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, And we're going to talk about kind of a serious subject, um, which is abuse, substance abuse and addiction. Um, And so before we get started, if you would just like to kind of introduce yourself, tell me about who you are and what do you want everyone to know? Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. So um, I am a doctor of pharmacy. I got my doctorate in 2011 from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. And I went on to do two years of residency in um, southeastern Ohio. So it was um, kind of where Ohio met West Virginia meets Kentucky. So that's where I really got exposed to addiction and opiate abuse because that, um, especially that time of um, when I was doing residency, it was probably one of the biggest areas for opioid abuse and addiction. Um, so I got to do a lot of work in um, substance abuse um, programming and treatments um, while I was there. And um, then I ended up getting board certified in psychiatric pharmacy. So um, I currently work as a clinical pharmacy specialist doing um, mental health, psychiatry, um, but a lot of that too is addiction medicine. So that's uh kind of my background. So I'm very excited to uh, talk with you all today. That's awesome. That is a, there's a lot of credentials there that you just listed off. <laughs> um, so I remember when I uh, moved to college, well, I grew up in a really small town and just a rural area. And I remember when I went to college, there was like a bunch of articles out of nowhere about like, um, all these like drugs and like showing up. And I don't know if it was just that there were more like more coverage on it in the media recently, or if it just is like spiking into like such a big problem now. Um, I'm sure that it's always been a problem, but I don't know if the problem's getting bigger or if we're just like starting to talk about it and address it more. Um, But that's like my first memory of like, like, oh, this is actually, 
something that's an issue like everywhere not just in you know because I think a lot of times people think like inner city is like the dangerous drug place but yeah like you said it's it's everywhere um so from your experiences what do you think is like the main cause of substance abuse and addiction or why do people even choose to abuse substances in the first place and I know there's probably a lot to unpack in that question right (laughs) so yeah so using an addiction are kind of two different sides of the coin. Um, A lot of people might use, um, first of all, there's a huge genetic component. Um, It's something like if you have a blood relative that had um, addiction to cocaine, you're 72% likely to have that same addiction. So it's, it's huge. Yeah. And it's like 70% for opiates, um, 55% for alcohol, um, even like 39% for hallucinogens like LSD and psychedelic mushrooms that you don't even hear about as often. Um, but yeah, there's a huge genetic component. So it's always, I think, important to have these discussions to know your family history if you're able to find that out um, so that you just know what your risks are. I, I'll be working with patients currently in clinic that will say, you know, we're just going through the standard questions and I'll ask them about alcohol use. It's one of my standard questions and they'll go, oh, no, no, no. My my dad um, and my grandpa had a lot of alcoholism, so I don't drink because I don't even want to put myself at risk. And that's very smart because they had that information. They were able to avoid it. Um, but as for like when people tend to use, I think um, peer pressure plays a lot into that. You know, if you're um, particularly in like adolescent teenage life, you're at a party or, you know, wanting to experiment, you're wanting to know kind of you maybe you want to do it because everybody else is doing it. So I think that that's um, huge. And I think especially with kids today, like I feel so bad because they can't even step away. Like when I was in high school, I could get away by just like leaving school. <laughs> you know, they'd have to call me by my phone that plugged into my wall. You know? <laughs> it wasn't like now where it's like you get no break. It's everybody has phones. You have social media. You don't get that break. So I think that peer pressure is probably even an additional level um, now. Um, they also know things like poor parental supervision. Um, of course, those kids are a lot more likely to um, maybe fall into a rougher crowd, be more exposed. Um, of course, exposure is the first step. If you're never exposed to it, you're never going to use it. You might not know where to find it, um, you know, maybe outside of maybe sampling from the parent's liquor cabinet. Um you know, it's a lot harder to come by if you don't have that exposure. So if the parents aren't very involved in their lives, you know, or maybe they work or maybe it's a single parent um, where it's just a lot harder to pay, you know, pay that close of attention to your kids. And especially when they're older, I think it's easier to be comfortable where you're like, you know, they're, they're 14. They, they, they're fine on their own now, but they're going to be tempted and they may have more opportunity. Um, and of course, you know, and the flip side of that is if you you grow up in a household where your parents used or your your you know you were around people who used, of course then you're exposed, you have access, you kind of see what happens when they use, so you're going to be a little more um, apt to maybe try different things like that, um, and and it does you know affect like inner cities. Um, 
little bit more, but it's not even just inner cities, it's more poverty. So there is a socioeconomic um, status that is linked to people abusing, whether it's just because those things are more accessible because people are just trying to make a living. So, you know, it comes down to, well, maybe this is how they, um, they work. This is how they do it. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the things that come into play. Um, and sometimes, you know, things like mental illness are very much linked with substance use. Um, because one of those things that people do when they use is they're just looking for a way to feel good. Um, and maybe they think this is the way to do it. And maybe they do get that little boost once they first start using, but it turns into addiction and a problem when they keep using and that turns into like a maladaptive behavior. So I don't feel good if I use substance X, I'll feel better. But of course that's short lived. And then the cycle just goes and you add in cravings and withdrawal and, you know, it becomes this whole process of where you're looking for it. You don't feel right without the substance. And that's when it flips into more like the dependence and addiction side of things. So it could start out completely harmless, especially if you don't know your family history, but um, it can, you know, go up that trajectory. Um, a couple of things that you said stood out. You mentioned, like, um, for a lot of us, like, the only exposure we might have is just, like, our parents having a drink after work or something, um, <laughs> and it made me think of, and you also mentioned, like, um, poverty and that kind of uh, exposure kind of um, puts you at more of a risk. But um, I taught at a really high poverty school. And so the kids easily had access from their homes. They didn't just have a liquor cabinet that they could choose from. They had, you know, a lot of other drugs that their parents were very open about. And like, you know, the kids were allowed to do drugs with their parents or like that kind of stuff so when you throw that into and like you said like just trying to make money there were like that's the family business so it's accepted and encouraged and yeah it's uh, a different world sometimes than what I'm used to for sure at least oh absolutely um could you you mentioned that that there is a difference between abuse and addiction could you give us just a brief kind of definition of the two Sure. So um, abuse is um, if you're using and you're using above what is feel, you know, safe, um, you know, with with the hard illicit drugs like cocaine, um, one or two times could be considered abuse. Um, it's very easy to get addicted to cocaine because of how it attaches to our receptors in the brain. Our brains like it. Um, it gives you that good rush. Um, so that's why it's pretty, pretty potent. Same thing with opioids. You get a very similar thing where if you just use a couple times, maybe that could quantify as abuse. Now things um, like alcohol are very well defined. Um, so we have addiction networks and programs and, you know, the, there's scholars out there that have defined things like alcohol abuse falls into, um, they even separate it between male and females based on how you metabolize it. And it's like most things in life. A little bit is okay, but when you take too much, it becomes harmful. Um, so like for men, um, having more than four drinks, and they even define drinks as like a 12-ounce beer, a four-ounce glass of wine, a shot, um, 
if you have four or more than four in a period of 24 hours or more than um, 21 drinks per week, that's considered um, abuse. Um, or if you have a period of binge drinking, which is more than six in one period. Um, for women, it's about half that. It's two to three drinks per occasion and more than 14 per week. Um, so once you get above those levels, you're looking at more of like abuse picture, especially if you have this re repetitive cycle um, where it's like, well, I don't really drink regularly, but maybe once a month I do have 12 pack. Okay, well, we're seeing a regular pattern here and that would fall into abuse. But why it's not addiction at that point is there is defined um, how you get that diagnosis of like a substance use disorder is there's a very defined um, Thing by the DSM-5, which is the Di Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health Disorders, which is where substance use falls into. So there has to be craving involved and there has to be this like preoccupation with where are you going to get your next whatever it is you're looking for. Um, those are two big ones. Um, the, the not feeling normal if you don't use. And with all mental health issues, there has to be some sort of dysfunction in your life, whether it be occupational, maybe you're at risk of losing your job or lost your job. Um, there has to, or maybe it's family, maybe there's marital discord because you're using and your spouse is worried about you or a family member um, or um, just social. Maybe you're opting to not hang out with your friends or family anymore because you're opting to stay home and use. So that's when it becomes like a disorder is when you hit those categories that is actually causing a disruption in your life. Um, do you have any, through your experiences, if do you have any things that you can share, like ways that you've seen people change? Like you said, maybe um, you lose a job or you have issues with your family or friends. Um, have you seen like personally any of those things happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a, a younger guy, um, so like in his late 40s, early 50s, who had worked really hard for his job as a, a large truck driver. And he's got a family history of alcoholism. Um, and he was getting to the point where he, he never drove drunk, but he would drink so hard when he wasn't on the road. He was turning up late for shifts. Um, he had a change in his behavior. Um, he was forgetting things. And, and he, he finally made the call out to um, us to ask for help because he's like, I'm going to lose my job if I haven't already. So he was very worried. He's like, you know, I'm 50. I can't, I can't lose my job. I've worked hard for this. I need help. And fortunately, he was willing to do a program and get sober. And um, he went from somebody who was drinking like a liter of hard alcohol a night to sober now for about eight weeks. So, um, you know, he, he was a, a good success story. But you see those people that you think they've hit rock bottom is the term we use where they maybe have ended up in jail. Um, maybe they're at risk of, you know, um, if, if they're in the military, they could become court-martialed because of their substance use. They could lose their position in the military because of substance use. And, uh, you know, especially these are tend to be way younger people, like 20s and 30s. And you see them like, yeah, I got arrested. And, you know, it's because I was, you know, DUI or I got in a fight. And you see them kind of try and come out of that. And then they crash again. So you'll see that too, where you just are like, 
I don't know what it's going to take for them. And sometimes it takes very scary events like seizures or nearly bleeding to death because you'll get these like, these kind of like almost like blisters in your throat that are called varices that alcohol will cause and they can bleed. And if they start bleeding, you can bleed to death. So sometimes it's like a medical emergency where they're like, okay, now, now I'm ready. I'm really ready because I should have been dead. So sometimes it does take that rock bottom for people to realize that it's, it's dangerous for them to keep doing what they're doing. So shifting, like you said, um, about like a lot of, um, people who abuse or become addicted to um, any kind of drug sometimes have like mental health issues that they're dealing with or trying to cope with. Um, So we in uh, obviously in schools, the say no to drugs, whatever, but in my classes, we do a lot of um, social emotional learning and we had an entire unit about like, um, and it was anti-drug, but it also talked about like the coping skills and things you can, positive things you can do besides drugs um, to help you deal with those kinds of emotions. So can you explain to us a little bit like what are coping skills and then maybe give some examples of some healthy coping skills? Sure, sure. So coping skills are those things um, really a lot of different things that you can use to kind of take a break from the situation that you're in or things that, um, you know, will make you feel a little better that are are more adaptive than maladaptive. So going to drugs would be a maladaptive behavior. You know, that's something that's just setting you up for worse outcomes. But there are really healthy, adaptive uh, coping mechanisms that you can learn. And and this is something I work with my patients on a lot um, because some really do respond you know, it's, it sounds kind of corny saying go to your happy place, but that can really, especially for people that get stressed, like I'll be like, okay, what is something you can do anywhere? It doesn't matter if you're in public. It doesn't matter if you're at home. Um, you know, the, the, the main name is mindfulness. So it's really taking a, a moment out and some people it's deep breathing where you take the big breaths in and you blow it all out. Like I had one friend in college who would do that and she would say, you know, in with the good stuff, out with the bad. But it would it would calm her down and it would help when she was getting so frazzled or anxious. Um, I have one guy that he'll get really tense and I'll be like, okay, what's your happy place? Oh, I like when um, I'm out in the woods with my dog. Okay. Let's talk about that. What does it feel like when you're out in the woods? What do you smell? What do you hear? So we'll actually transport him to the woods with his dog to get him out of that moment. And it can even be as simple as like, I'll practice all mindfulness because there are days where I might have 12, 14 patients in clinic. And my only downtime is going to be when I'm walking from my office to the waiting room to get the next patient. So it's easy for me to to do little things that I might not normally pay attention to, but it gives me a chance to decompress really quickly. Like when I'm walking, I'm going to pay attention to how my feet feel on the ground because that's not something we have to pay attention to. But when you really do, for one thing, it doesn't let your brain think about the last patient or think about the next patient or think about whatever it is you're thinking about because you're making it focus on something else. So it's really something that you can practice anywhere. So, you know, I might only have this 30 second walk, but that's enough for me to just kind of clear my mind of the last person and get ready for the next person without trying to 
think about all these other things in between because I'm just not letting myself do that. So I think mindfulness is a really good coping mechanism because you can do it anywhere. And, you know, it can, and like I said, it can be as easy as taking in some deep breaths and just taking a moment. Um, you know, I think being comfortable in excusing yourself from a situation is something that I hope, especially like teens will feel more empowered to do. Like, be like, you know, this is not what I want to be doing. I'm just going to you know, maybe have a ready-made excuse. Oh, I got to go home. I got to watch my little brother. I, oh, I got to work on this project. I got to go, you know, just kind of having that plan B so that you don't have to feel like if I dip, what are people going to say? Um, but it's like, if you have this other obligation that sometimes people are just a little more like, oh, okay, okay, we'll see you next time. Um, so I think kind of going into, especially if you, you're going into a situation where you know you might be exposed to things you're not maybe wanting to be exposed to or ready to be exposed to, um, kind of having an easy way out, I think, too, because then that removes you from the situation without feeling that extra pressure to, okay, I'll just do it. Because, you know, I think going into anything um, where you're feeling pressured to do it is not going to be an enjoyable experience for you. So, you know, those are some things too that I'll tell people is it's okay to remove yourself. Just say, I got to, I got to go. I got this, I got that. And that's, that's perfectly okay. Um, I, while you were speaking, I was thinking that deep breathing is 100% my like go-to breathing in the good and breathing out the bad like energy um always helps me feel better and I liked that you um talked about like those short little 30 second walks to and from like using that to clear your mind because we have that at school you know just like the bell rings class leaves a new class comes in you don't have a lot of time to you know process anything or decompress or anything so just taking a quick second breathe in breathe out and then you know move on um but yeah i i also liked what you said about having some kind of excuse if you need it ahead of time because especially for teens I think it's super hard for them to say no and because they're worried about like what are people going to say about them if they don't you know give in and do what their friends are doing so yeah having that kind of excuse or even if you have a friend that can like back you up and say like, oh, we have to go, we have to be here. You know, that's a good thing to have is that kind of support. So what, where can young people go? And I'm thinking specifically of like teens or young adults, um, where can they go for help if they're struggling with addiction and it's not like something that everyone knows, right? Because I think it's not always obvious to people that people are struggling. Right, right, absolutely. So, um, you know, of course, if you're, you have a good relationship with um, an older relative, and maybe it's not even your parents, maybe it's an aunt or an uncle or an older cousin or somebody that you feel you can touch to. Maybe it's even a teacher or guidance counselor at your school where you're like, I realize this is not good. I need to talk to somebody. If they have somebody in their life that they can trust that can help navigate some of those things, um, maybe even navigate the conversation with the parents, um, you know, I think that would be 
like the best situation for somebody to have. But I realize a lot of people don't have that in their lives. So there are a lot of good online um, resources that not only um, will give you information about different drugs and addiction, but it will also um, some even have live chatting where you can talk to counselors that uh, work on these lines or um, even like what programs are near me? How accessible are they? Are they just kind of like, you know, like they have AA and NA meetings for teens. So where do I go for those? Maybe they're even virtual. So there are um, like recovery.org is a big one that has all that information plus the counselors um, so that there is that access to the chat as to how do I get help? What is this even addiction? What am I doing? You know, maybe they have questions. They don't even know what's going on, um, especially being younger, um, you know, and they can get that information in a secure non-judgmental way. Um, and then the um, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services and Advocacy, which is um, SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A. That is also really good um, resources for all things substance abuse and addiction, as well as mental health. They're a big advocacy group, so they also have access to how to have these conversations with your parents or how families can talk. Because I think, too, you know, I don't know if it's just our society or this is just how things are. We don't, we're not very good about talking about um, things that we feel are kind of taboo, whether it be um, mental illnesses or addiction, you know, and I think if you can learn how to have those conversations with families and, and, um, you know, amongst families, I think then everybody gets the information that they need to know what works best because there's so much genetics in both mental health as well as addiction, as we talked about, that knowing your family history can help a lot because it's not only what I'm at risk to develop, but it's also treatments because if you have a first, um, like a blood relative that responded to a certain antidepressant, there's a ton of antidepressants on the market. So if you come to me and say, I've never been on anything, but I think I have depression and we do a workup and yes, you have some depression. It is a complete, you know, shot in the dark as to what we're going to try you on. We're going to try you on, you know, we'll go over a list of you know, side effects and how long things take and, you know, how many times a day you have to take it and kind of let you pick from a list. But if you go, my mom has depression and she takes this antidepressant, then we're going to start you on that because especially if your mom's doing well on that antidepressant, we'll know. But if you never have those conversations, you're not going to have that information to know that. And your recovery process can be significantly delayed because we're just kind of trial and error, trial and error until we do find the right one for you. So, you know, I think a big step we can all make is being more just kind of losing the stigma of having these conversations, you know, just making it, you know, people talk about their diabetes. Like, like, why aren't we talking about anxiety? Why aren't we talking about depression? Why aren't we talking about alcohol abuse? You know, I think if we can get that conversation going, I think more people have more information to be better protected and know how to take better care of themselves too. Um, so a lot of my students listen to my podcast, so I like to throw in at the end some kind of piece of advice for them, um, and I teach middle and high schoolers, so what advice would you give them, um, or just young people in general, what advice could you give them uh, in regards to peer pressure? Um, you know, I think, I think one thing now that I'm 
older. Um, I'm in my 40s. So um, peer pressure and high school and all that thing, it seems so important. It seems like at that time that you're living it, it just seems like, oh my gosh, if I don't have everything right now, I'm not going to have everything. And that's not true. <laughs> not true at all. Like you could not pay me money to go back to that time period. And I had a good high school experience, you know, um, I had, I, I, I would say, you know, get yourself a good supportive friend group, um, that you trust that, um, you know, that you, you know, will, um, not lead you in the wrong direction. So if you do go, hey, so-and-so is having a party, what do you think about that? In, in the very least, if it's something you're curious about, maybe you'll have a good friend that will go with you um, so that if things do get a little out of hand, you have somebody to support you. Um, but I, I think just keeping in mind that you're going to get older you're going to go on to have your own careers, you know, have families, do your own thing. In the long run, this period of your life is, it's just a blip. It's just a blip. And, you know, just support, find good supportive people to put yourself around during this time period. And those are the people you're going to be around, you know, have contact with for the rest of your life. So, you know, those are the people that you want in your circle. You know, I, I think like one thing that I've made an effort to do as I've gotten older is that people that I just feel, you know, we all know those people that are just negative and they just bring you down whenever you're around them. Like they, they suck the energy out of you. I've made an effort to cut those people out of my life. Like, I'm just like, you know, I don't, need this in my life. I want to be surrounded by good, positive people. Not saying like people don't have a bad day. Of course, everybody has a bad day. But it's those people that are just constantly negative or constantly just in a place where you don't like being around them. Get rid of them. That's not worth it. So find those good group of friends that support you get through this time. And even when you're having a hard time with either your self identity, or, um, you know, what you're doing, or what your future is, don't worry about it, it will work out. Um, you know, so just be you, just be you and you'll be okay. I love that. And I love, um, like, getting rid of the negative people is getting rid of sounds maybe harsh, but, um, my first year of <laughs> teaching, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, my first year of teaching, I felt so overwhelmed because, you know, like, and I don't know how it's in the education world. It's pretty common that like the teacher's lounge is where like all the, uh, talking and gossiping and all of that kind of stuff goes down. And I just eventually stopped going there because it's it was so negative and once I cut out all the like gossipy negative people and just focus on the teachers that I thought were like actually there to like care about the kids it was a much better experience so I think that's good advice for everyone it doesn't matter if you're in high school or if you're an adult like making sure that you have good people around you is always going to be important so um, when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to have a good supportive group of friends. I think there was a group of like five or six of us and we never had like crazy parties. We probably like acted like drunk people, but we never were drunk ever. Like we, we did crazy obnoxious things, but just because we were happy being around each other. So I really appreciate that kind of friendship and I think that that has helped me a lot in my adult life having like standards for the people that I'm going to share my time with so 
Um, do you have any final thoughts, comments, anything? Um, just that as, you know, somebody who's worked with the mental health population now for over a decade, um, you know, don't be afraid to talk about things that are uncomfortable. If you don't feel good, it's okay to not feel okay. Um, you know, I'm a big advocate of asking for help, of destigmatizing mental illness and addiction, um, because so many people all over the world um, struggle with these things. And unless you let people know how you're doing, it's very hard to get better. But there are ways to get better. So don't be afraid to ask for help, you know. Um, there's a lot of people out here that just that just want to help you. So um, there's a lot of non-judgmental. There's a lot of good people out there. So don't be afraid to ask for help if you don't feel okay. Um, okay, I think that takes us to the end. Thank you so much, Katie, for chatting with me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. I would just like to say thank you one more time to Katie for taking time out of her summer schedule to chat with me. Um, guys, Katie literally recorded that in June. She has waited two whole months to hear this podcast episode, and I have been slumming it this summer. So um, sorry, Katie. Thank you for being patient, and thank you to the listeners for sticking it through as usual. Um, just a reminder, I'm looking for guests, and if you or someone you know would be awesome or has some kind of topic you're passionate about and you want to share with the world, um, please let me know. My email is princesspowerpodcast at gmail.com, and you can also send me suggestions like what topics do you want to hear. Um, yeah, I'm interested to hear from you guys. I want this to be for you, so... I also have a Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash princesspower. So if you want to support me that way, I have really cool Princess Power swag. And yeah, I will see you in the next episode in two weeks. We are sticking to the two-week schedule. I will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.